Welcome to Archonnect Sessions, episode 24. This week, we chew on Frank Gehry's new Facebook HQ, aka MPK20, in all of its open plan and untreated plywood glory. We also speculate on Cuba's architectural identity alongside Airbnb, as the disruptive hospitality platform installs itself in the country after diplomatic ties with the U.S. were restored last December. We're also featuring the first half of an interview I did with Pritzker Prize-winning architect Kevin Roche of Kevin Roche, Don Dinkaloo, and Associates. Roche shares wisdom garnered for more than 60 years in the profession on the ideal client, the media's role in architecture, and trends in office design. Paul will be back next week with no doubt some swashbuckling adventure tales from his vacation. I'm here with co-hosts Donna and Ken. How are you guys doing? Good. Great. Hi, Amelia. Hi, Ken. Hey. Hi, guys. What's up? What did you guys do this week? Donna? I'll start. Sure. Not much, just mostly working. The thing I did yesterday that unfortunately Paul's not on the line, I was going to ask him about it. I was contacted by a young man named Obi Okulu from the AIAS National, so the American Institute of Architecture Students National. And he is working on a series of interviews called Archetypes, talking with people. It's it's somewhat similar to the Working Out of the Box series. He's talking with people who have taken a non-traditional path in architecture. And apparently he interviewed Paul a couple of weeks ago. So we'll have to get confirmation from Paul about that. And he and I talked yesterday on the phone and it was just fantastic. Just really great to talk about all the different paths you can take in architecture. Again, that you can you can be a designer or you can go down a whole bunch of other paths and, and do interesting things in the discipline. So yeah, that was great. And it was related somewhat to my talk that I'm giving at the AI National Convention. So I'm really feeling like I'm gearing up for the Atlanta Convention. I, I contacted a few old classmates from University of Arizona to ask them if they're going to the convention too. So maybe uh, there's just going to be so many familiar faces there. I'm really excited about it. Yeah, that's going to be so cool. I'm also really looking forward to just being in Atlanta and seeing the gathering of the architects. It's like some biological phenomenon that happens every year where like the swallows return to Capistrano or something. <laughs> All of the architects flock to the National AIA Convention. We flock and we drink. <laughs> that's, that's pretty yes. much how it goes. And, you know, pick up some continuing education units on the way. So, so that's <laughs> yeah. really all I've been up to. Just, you know, mostly working. Ken, you're taping up your fingers, it sounds like. What are you up to? Oh, um, I'm learning the fine points of getting your ass kicked in jujitsu. Woo! It's, it's a matter of control getting your ass kicked properly, right? Oh, yeah. I'm, I think I'm the oldest guy in the class. And, uh, and yeah, I'm getting thrown around a lot and getting bruised pretty badly, which is fun. But it's it's exhausting. So doing that, dealing with um, helping my friend, I think I spoke a little bit about it last week, got some code comments back at the end of the week that I have to address. So that's kind of fun, dealing with existing building codes and existing building conservation code in Minnesota. And then project at work, I got a board meeting in front of a community or a neighborhood organization tomorrow to kind of review the project with, uh, try to get a support letter from them. And that's pretty much it. So do you think jujitsu is going to serve your architectural prowess? Actually, I do, strangely enough. Well, one of the things that I, I, you know, I don't think people would think that by listening to me on the podcast, but one of the things I'm confident that it'll help is confidence, um, self-confidence. So just in the three classes or the first two classes I had last week, this just this kind of sense of, you know, that 
you're walking into a you're, you're the new guy and new kid in class and it's a daunting task and and uh, making it through those two days and getting uh, the kind of support I haven't really seen a lot of in Minnesota from other peers from a group of people I've never met before was really fantastic and it that kind of emboldens you and, and gives you some you know lifts you up a little bit so in that regard yeah physically also I mean I, and even when I'm looking at the moves and practicing the moves I relate it to chess and, and architecture because there's these spatial issues that you're trying to deal with and there's technique and it's, it's a pretty complicated process so yeah i think it'll fine-tune me physically and fine-tune me mentally i was just going to say about the traditions of certain architects being committed to a physical activity to an almost obsessive degree because it yeah. does help with that routine with discipline swimming is something i've heard a lot is some type of like somewhat meditative and mm -hmm. a chance to kind of disconnect but still be physically engaged anything like that and and the fact that maybe you could also if you're dealing with say a difficult client you can just you know pin them on the ground immediately and make them do whatever you need to do <laughs> or you know those contractors on the job site that just need to have their ass kicked <laughs> exactly yeah and i mean i already do transcendental meditation so i've been practicing tm for the past uh, 4 years so this is just another level of trying to have a sense of presence. I think that's one of the more difficult things I deal with is that I'm a little bit ADD where things are constantly all over the place. And I think a little bit more mindfulness and a little bit more confidence and being present in the moment is kind of what I'm looking for. And I think these kinds of techniques or these kinds of physical and mental skills will only fine tune those a little bit more. So important to be in the moment. I feel like it's something I'm trying to do as well recently more. And I think, I don't know if it has to do with getting older or if it's just that it seems like we live in such a fractured mental state based on all of our, you know, email notifications and Twitter and everything that, um, yeah, it's really important to be in the moment. And the reason I think about it, too, is two things. One is I went to see Chrissy Hind perform a couple that last Thanksgiving in Phoenix, and she bans cell phone pictures from her concerts because she wants you to be in the moment. And she had these signs all around the, the hall that said, don't get out your camera. I want you to be in the moment. And uh, so I'm trying to live that. But also my mother has Parkinson's, my beautiful, amazing mother has Parkinson's, which is getting worse and worse. And she is now having to get through her day by doing one thing and then stopping and considering where her body is in space and then doing another move and then stopping because that's what the, the Parkinson's is making her body not respond very well. So yeah, it's critical to stay aware of your body and to stay aware of where your body is in the moment. And again, to us, that relates so much to architecture, right? Yeah, to where exactly. the walls are, where the where the wood <laughs> is, where the... All those materials, it all relates. Yeah, I found that I'm, I'm just doing some of the warm-ups. We have to do these um, practice forward rolls and side rolls. And I didn't realize this, but I, um, I get very dizzy. <laughs> oh, really? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so <laughs> my spatial orientation gets messed up when I'm doing that. I'm like, oh, it's crazy. Oh, it's too bad Paul's not here to talk about scuba diving in relation to this. Because, yeah, oh, yeah. That, you know, getting disoriented and not knowing which way is up completely would would seems like it's part of scuba diving. Yeah. Amelia, what are you up to? What have you been doing? Well, I have been... So last weekend, I went out to the desert again. I've kind of made it into a little bit of a unplanned ritual that now every weekend I'm going out to Joshua Tree just to camp for a single night. But recently, I'm sure you guys might have seen it, the New York Times put out a extensive article on the state of drought in California. Oh, yeah. It's a big topic. Yeah. And they had this incredible photo series to accompany the piece of these just really remarkable aerial shots of the, the edge of development, the edge of residential development right up against 
pure desert or pure chaparral as it's like technically biomed in California. And so you have these swaths, these giant squares of sand next to giant squares of McMansions with green lawns and pools and such. And I had kind of a taste of going out to the desert and we stayed, we camped in this, in an RV park, which is in its way a version of what the future dystopia might look like if we truly do run out of water entirely and we have to revert to some type of, you know, Mad Max style civilization where everyone's living out of like oil drums in the desert. So it was a little bit of a fun realization that I was living on the ground, sleeping on the ground in that landscape that was being photographed in this very stylized way for to just to illustrate the horrors of what a lot of people are calling the end of the Californian dream <laughs> that we're finally, you know, rubbing up against the inevitability of running out of water and therefore running out of the ability to sustain our powerhouse state, which is, you know, I think more doom and gloom than is merited at this point. But I was just completely thrown aback by that article and also by the beauty of the desert that I was in over the weekend. So it's it's a strange state to be in right now, literally speaking. I guess both existentially and the state of California. Everyone is demonizing almonds. Almonds are like just apparently the worst thing ever. (laughs) Over a gallon of water per almond. (gasps) Yes, exactly. Hey, hey, I like my almond milk. (laughs) And Ken, I support you for buying California almond milk because there's, you know, there's a lot of metrics by which we can measure the droughts. And it's, I think in, in California, a lot of people are just miffed because you hear different proportional statistics, but anywhere from 75 to 80% of California water is put towards agricultural use, not just, you know, the consumer watering their lawn or washing their car, but almost all of the fines and like restrictions are being imposed on the residential and on the individual level. And so people are griping about like the almond has just become like this perfect, the tiny little enemy that everyone can can hate and see as the problem in the face of their, you know, non-low flow toilet and their propensity for hosing down their Cadillac every week or something like that. So it's a a strange place to be right now, but it is fun seeing how how different outlets are dealing with this. And just that's my silver lining is looking at the media response to what is a very real, very distressing natural problem. You know, the the book Cadillac Desert came out 20 years ago or so, right? I mean, I feel like we've been talking about water issues in the desert. And of course, I went to school in Arizona where we talked about water use deeply. Uh, We had a specialty in desert architecture at my undergrad. But what I can't figure out is, is it really worse now than it was when Cadillac Desert was written? Or is it just that we can hear about it so much more now? You know, that everyone on my Facebook feed is showing these photographs of an almond, like you said, the perfect (laughs) almond, you know, bathing in a huge swimming pool worth of water. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I mean, it's certainly the use of water in the desert Southwest is out of control. And there is absolutely no reason to be doing these gorgeous lawn, lush green lawn, you know, golf courses in the middle of of Phoenix, but I also wonder if it's just so it's just so much easier to get outraged about things right now, you know? Oh yeah. Cuz you get it so quickly. Definitely. I think that whatever because there's an architecture or an um historian at, I believe he's at USC. He might not specifically be an architectural historian. I'm I might be mixing my disciplines, but Kevin Starr, who you guys might know, but he's written extensively about California development and having this constant almost schadenfreude wish of the rest of the country to see California fail in its completely magical thinking about like Western exceptionalism and everything. So the Mm -hmm. idea that 
finally they're getting their comeuppance. They may have gotten those swimming pools and those movie stars and those like green lawns and whatever. But now, now is the time that, and that, and that claim has been made like over multiple decades. And it's decades. And the thing is, it's like, yes, we have been dealing with an incredible amount of growth, residential growth and developmental growth that is putting a harder strain on things. But in the past, we found ways to work around it. And in this time, like we are more capable technologically to also think of solutions for it. So it's kind of like, and yes, not everyone needs to have their green lawns. Like there's a big rebate program going on where the government will basically pay you to put in California native plants that don't suck up as much water as the perfect green lawn. So there's many different approaches to this and there's no need to get doom and gloom about it as far as I'm concerned right now. Although it can be super doomy and gloomy when your governor is like (laughs) finally addressing it. But that's for the next few years to figure out. We'll see. It'll be interesting. So completely on another note, apropos of the desert chaparral of California, we moved to the lush, I'm imagining, Connecticut landscape. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Green. Talk about green and pristine. The green and pristine where Kevin Roche's office is located. And so we thought we would start out this episode with the first half of my interview with Kevin Roche, and we can pick up the discussion after that. So I thought we would, instead of talking maybe specifically about your more recent work or trying to delve into specifically going on about my recent projects, I'd like to kind of do a overview and have you muse a little bit about your entire career and some of the observations and analyses you've made over the course of working in architecture for um, a significant portion of the 20th century. And I'd like to start out just with a kind of simple managerial question about how you as an architect balance your job with other people involved on a project in different positions. So in regards to overseeing a project from design to construction, how has the role of the architect changed during your time in the profession? Well, the architect has many roles, but if we're talking about the design architect as opposed to the managing architect, let's say the design architect, there is a project, you talk to the owner, you look at the size, you consider the environmental aspects of it, if there are people, if it's a, if let's say an office building, uh, I have talked to hundreds of people who are going to be in the office that we're planning for them and asked them what their preferences are and all kinds of things, even what they like in the bathroom and so on and so forth. And you get as much information as you possibly can, and then you start to root through it all, and you finally come up with a concept. Now, that is important that you come up with the concept concepts aren't done by groups. So the essence of the design is always from one individual mind. And then you begin to explain that to the rest of your team in the design area and things get settled down. And of course, they have their own opinions about what should be here, what should be there, and shouldn't they move this over that way and so on and so forth. And you live through that and take every suggestion on its mirrors and see if it's indeed what should be done. And then you consider it and you wait. it. And in the middle of the night, you decide, yes, that's the thing to do. Or at four o'clock in the morning, you decide it isn't the thing to do. Because your mind never stops working when you're involved in one of these projects in the design phase of the project. So that's as far as the designer is concerned, as far as the manager or the person who is going to develop the construction documents, there's a whole area of research into the law, the requirements, the structural aspects of a project, 
the all of the energy conservation and so on and so forth, and you go through all of those opportunities and possibilities and concerns, and then you have your team of developing people start the construction documents, and you keep supervising that, and you keep a very good a close connection between the two groups, the design group and the construction development group, uh, back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And it goes on for months and months and months, and you finally have a set of documents. Now, what I have left out of this whole description is the owner, the developer. And with that person, you are in constant contact if it's a good relationship. And unfortunately, what is happening these days there has emerged a thing called a middle manager. And I like to compare middle managers to shaving soap, which is to say that you put the soap on your face and that covers the area that has to be shaved. But unfortunately, it doesn't shave for you. <laughs> you still have to do the work. So you've got this guy telling you this, that, and the other thing, and which you always nearly, nearly always know and don't agree with or whatever. And you still have to keep going. So middle managers are a huge pain in the neck, in my opinion. And they are partly, they come with large groups, uh, particularly any kind of a governmental thing is loaded with middle managers. This is the problem why Congress can't get anything done. You know, it's because they've always intermediate people who are saying you should have done this, that, the other thing. And they're all very earnest and always well-intentioned and all of that. But it is not a constructive way to go about doing something. Mm. Their role is always caught between the intentions of the architect and the exactly. preconceptions of the client and how, how to balance those two things without offending either party <laughs> seems rather uh, constantly compromising. And we've, we've had good experiences with middle managers, wonderful people who, you know, work along with you. And we've had terrible experiences. Guys who just absolutely, you know, no matter what it is, they turn it upside down. <laughs> just because that's what they feel they have to do. Mm. So that's so much for all that. So then how does that impact your relationship with the client? Maybe you could describe who your ideal client might be in terms of the kind of relationship you would have. And when you're working with a difficult client, do you have any methods or so to ease that process? Well, the ideal client is one who is educated to the needs of the community, environment, have a sense of history, have a good education so that they have a broader aspect. The bad client is somebody who is doing it purely as an investment and sees only the dollar signs. Now, the best client I think I've ever had was Erwin Miller from Columbus, Indiana, who was a brilliant man. He was an extraordinary education and he had uh, he headed up the Cummins Engine Company. And I'll just give you an example of how, how when the Pritzkers, in the early days of the Pritzker Prize, um, he decided to have them for dinner one night in his house, which we had designed for him in Columbus. And Jay Pritzker and his wife and a couple of the other Pritzkers came. And we had this very elaborate dinner. And Erwin uh, had a chef who produced uh, 20 different versions of a, I can't remember, it's something that collapses normally. This is something that you bake. A souffle? A souffle. Ah, very and, impressive. And given, it's very, so all this kind of thing. And then at the end of dinner, Irwin brought in four members of the Indianapolis 
University Concert Group, and he took out his Stradivarius, and he played a wonderful Bach for us. And Jay Brisker said, boy, you really know how to make somebody feel small. <laughs> <laughs> but that was Erwin. And, you know, just fully educated, and he was fully understood and was very sympathetic, and he had a great eye for what was right and for what was not right. And he was very concerned that everything done should serve the people for whom it is being done. And that's the ideal client. And we have we have a wonderful client at the moment in Washington, D.C., which is now called PGP, Property Group Partners. And, well, in any case, there, there are three partners in it. And sure, they want to make money. It, it's an investment, in, after all. But they are very concerned. Jeffrey, Jeffrey, uh, Jeffrey Sussman, Jeffrey Sussman, and um, it was a company that was a Dreyfus company. You know, Julia Lewis Dreyfus. Mm-hmm, yeah. So, well, I think either her uncle or her father or uncle was the founder of the company, and then it was taken over when he departed the scene. It was taken over by these three partners, and Jeffrey Sussman is the lead, and their concerns are that they do the right thing for Washington as the capital city and that it is appropriate and that it is, you know, serves the people who will be in the buildings and that it is also an addition to the city itself in terms of its architecture without getting into trying to be as monumental as some of the buildings. They're all fairly low-key buildings, but they all fit nicely into the street wall and the street environment. And so we have, we've had wonderful clients in many other different ways. We've worked all over the world. We've worked in 12 United States and six European countries, six Asian countries. And as you can imagine, they're all substantially different from each other. But I would have to say that the vast majority of them were all very sensible and very concerned and very aware of their ability to add something or to destroy something, you know. And so it's, uh, I think by the time somebody comes to us, they're probably a good client because we have this kind of a reputation for being concerned by that. So that your normal, just down-to-earth investor wouldn't, wouldn't bother becoming involved with us. So I think we're lucky in that way. Well, so what about if you've ever, you don't have to speak personally, of course, but if there's any been maybe before you were are in your current position, but maybe working um, under Mies van der Rohe or um, with Eero Saarinen, if there was a different job that you were attached to and you had maybe not as much control over the project as you might have liked and then still having to work with a difficult client, how did you manage something like that? Well, working for Eero was absolutely wonderful. He was an extraordinary man, extraordinary, really great architect. And he worked round the clock. I mean, we worked 10, 12, 14 hours a day, every day. There was no such thing as weekends or anything like that. And I remember one day, uh, we were, it was about 8 o'clock in the morning, and Harris said, where the hell is everybody? And I said, it's New Year's Day. <laughs> and he said, so what? <laughs> so he was thoroughly, totally, you know, he had only 10 years of of practice in his own practice it was really and he accomplished so much and I flew around the world with him several times you know we flew in very 
lots of different places, and he was always working. He just never, never stopped working. You know, his mind was always going, and he was brilliant. He could draw beautifully, and he kept going sketches and you know discussing things, and we never stopped talking about whatever the project was. And he had really, I think he was not. He was never fully recognized for for the contribution that he made to modern architecture. It was just really quite extraordinary. You know, and still, I'd say, you know, things like the TWA building, the Dallas Airport, the CBS headquarters in New York. You know, a lot of these buildings are very significant, but they didn't really get, you know, get that much acceptance. It got some, but not not as much as I think it should be deserved. Mm -hmm. But it was a great experience to work for him. Everything I learned, I really learned from him. And that was how to go about tackling a job. And he would really start at the very, very, very beginning of a project and start looking into the history. How did this evolve? Where is it? You know, what are the circumstances, natural and cultural, surrounding this particular place where we're going to build? And who are the people? What are they thinking? What do they want? What do they need? What should we provide for them? And then the very hard nuts aspect of it, too, how to do it as, uh, you know, economically as possible and without overstressing that. But he was willing to use new ideas and try new systems. And really was one of the people who established the five-foot module at General Motors Technical Center, which became worldwide. Well, not worldwide, but in in the uh, Western world, you know, the five-foot module became a standard for all office buildings for quite a number of years. The curtain wall that he developed in the General Motors Technical Center was being used extensively in other places. The lighting systems, the illuminated ceiling, the acoustical systems, and all of those things, really all, many, many, many of them got their start in General Motors Technical Center. So he he really made it an enormous contribution and had an enormous impact in the evolution of what we know as modern architecture. And so I would definitely agree that those buildings have not maybe received the same amount of fanfare that you think that they might deserve. And that may have some combination to do with the personality of of the architect, but also the sign of the times perhaps. But I'm wondering what your position is or how you feel about the current state of architectural media and how it's so incredibly easy for a building anywhere in the world to be disseminated rapidly through images and for people to then make judgments on those images and for firms to be to be the recipients of either an incredible amount of positive or negative press based on a pretty flimsy piece of evidence that is a few photographs or even not right photographs but often sometimes just renderings or imaginations of the building so how has your position changed and how you present yourself as a how you present the work that you do in a media context based on how the information is disseminated so differently now? Well, that brings up another aspect, like the middle managers. Another sort of subculture that has started in the architecture is the the public relations person. And we're probably one of the few offices that doesn't have a public relations person, which is why not get, we can't get any work anymore. But <laughs> it, it, it's very, very difficult. I mean, now... I know of just modest offices, and there's three or four or five people 
doing public relations. But, you know, that's, so what? I mean, that's, that's not so good. It's, it's, it, what are, what are we in, you know, are we in advertising? You know, what do we have to do, Billy, and keep advertising it so that it gets to be well known so that we can get another project? You know, and that's, of course, it's always been a problem because the magazines have always contributed some to that. But that is beside the point, and it's not really why we're in the, in the world of architecture. We're in the world of architecture to make a contribution to the culture, you know, to the community, and to do something that helps establish and strengthen the community so that we can develop. You know, if you look into traditional, I don't mean traditional Western architecture, but let's say the what we might call the more primitive uh, tribal architecture in any part of the world, it has a very clear purpose, you know, to establish a certain kind of community, not always an ideal community, but it does establish a certain kind of community, certain procedures that enable the human animal to keep on working in a relative degree of peace and prosperity. And the problem with advertising yourself to start to direct that terrible word <laughs> you know, thing has become such an obsession now with people that you know you have these people out there with flags flying and they are the people who get all the notice and because they are the people who get all the notice they tend to get off the tracks and begin to do things that are then more and more remote from the original purpose of architecture. If you take for instance one of the great periods of Western architecture, you know, either the Greek Roman or the Gothic, and see the contribution that it made to creating towns, to creating a, a language, a sort of a, a building language that everybody understood, everybody appreciated, and wasn't necessarily always making any sense. You know, why do columns, why do you need columns and all that? You know, that's neither here nor there, but it did establish a language which is part of the culture, which is part of the everyday life of people who lived during those periods. And the same was true for church architecture, the same kind of thing in the Gothic architecture, where it established a language which then is still going on. I mean, you're still getting churches being built all over the world in a neo-Gothic style. And that's quite extraordinary that it has that kind of continuity and strength and mean, seems to mean something to people. But in modern architecture, it hasn't achieved that. Modern architecture doesn't have the same order. It, does, it did have at one time, you know, it did have a very order, the order of less is more, and I won't get into Bob Venturi now, but the order of, you know, keeping something very simple, very direct, very straightforward. But that ultimately doesn't go anywhere, you know. All it means is that's what we were doing in the first place, you know. That's what, if you left us alone and we build our mud cottages and put on thatched roofs and everything as simple as you can possibly do it because there's no other opportunity to get anything more elaborate. And I'm always, I, I of course, grew up in Ireland and there is a tradition uh, was a tradition in Ireland of building mud cottages. These are if somebody moved onto a piece of land and they dig up the earth and they 
packed it into two foot thick walls, and then they got some lime and they made a whitewash and they whitewashed it. And they went down to the river and picked some reeds and covered the roof of the building. And they developed a house, a home. And it's, it's, they're quite handsome, quite successful, and sometimes even quite elegant. And they just did it themselves. They, they, it's just sort of a, a homemade culture, if you can put it that way. But I saw an I know I'm wandering off a little bit, but I saw an absolutely incredible photograph in the recent publication at Yale, which is a photograph of some South American city, it may have been in Mexico, where there are about 32,000 little shacks, all identical homes, lined up one after another, after another, after another, after another. And, you know, that's, that's, what's, where, that's where we are. So that's all we can seem to do. We can seem to get beyond this very elemental, on the one hand in modern art, this very elemental multiple of elements. But then on the other hand, you get these very exotic, twisted buildings. You can, nothing seems to be straight anymore. It all, it all has to be twisted to get in a magazine. You know, if you don't twist it, don't get the magazine. So you have to twist. <laughs> no, but there are certainly trends that we see popping up, and they last for indeterminate amounts of time. Some longer than others, but they seem to not be rooted in any actual impetus other than a trend. There's no impetus other than following a specific trend or trying to capitalize it on yeah. some way. And especially because you've done so much work with institutional design and designing buildings that do have that opportunity because of the authority they represent to become an icon almost instantaneously. I wanted to ask you about how you approach museum design in particular, what the priorities have been for that typically and in the terms of designing an institution or designing for an institution. So how have the priorities for institutional museum architecture changed throughout your practice? Well, the first thing to realize in museum, in museums in general, is that people go to them, but they don't see anything. I've been in hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of museums all over the world, and I spend days watching people you know, what are they doing? They walk into a room, they glance around, and then they walk into the next room. And when you go to something like the Louvre, you get about what seems like 40,000 people standing in front of the Mona Lisa, you know, just because that's what was advertised. That's what they came to see, but they don't see anything else. And so the first thing you have to realize in designing a museum that you are presenting something that people want to look at, but that they don't. And so you have to do it in such a way so that the rooms are of a, an appropriate size so that they're not so frightening and that there aren't too many of them one after another after another that you get in there and you feel you have to get out of there. Uh, and that the paintings, if there's paintings or sculpture, are properly illuminated and that crowds can be avoided. If The museums really just work for the scholar. You know, they don't work for the average citizen. And the average citizen just goes there because they think that's the thing to do. But we, and I spent almost 50 years working at the Met, and we, we did, I spent days and days and days and days watching how people behave in museums. And it's very discouraging, I have to say. <laughs> it's very discouraging because you realize, you know, you make this super effort to make the perfect gallery, get the paintings out, the sculpture in there, get it properly lit. People walk in and walk past and have no idea what they're looking at. And that counts for about 90% of the people. Hmm. 
and you'll see an occasional person who will look at something or read the label. And we tried all kinds of different devices, like having illuminated signs. Like they're now trying our things, you know, with trying some mini television things which give you a little lecture on each painting, its origins, its relevance, and all of that kind of thing. But the museum is established to make a mark in a moment in time of a particular culture or history or community or whatever it is. You know, whether it's the local community wants to give you the history from the 17th century on and what happened to Little Houses, or whether it's something of a major museum which is going to show you a collection of paintings spanning over several hundred years and tell you about all of the painters and what this movement did and what that movement did and how they perceived and saw and reacted to certain movements, the painters, that is, or the sculptors, and who the leading people were and how it was with their original ideas and so on. But very, very, very few people actually get that message. <laughs> so designing museums is a tough problem because you know in your heart, you know, you're, you're doing it with the best of intentions, but you know in your heart that it's you're just spinning a wheel, that it's not going to go anywhere. But you have to do it. It has to be there. It has to be preserved. It's part of our history. It's part of our culture. But try to get somebody to learn from it or react to it or be influenced by it, and that's a whole other story. So the museum has two purposes. One is to get a roof over the art and and illuminated properly. And the other is to try to educate people of what is the significance of this art. Why is it important that you look at it? Why is it important that you understand it? You see, and that's the hard thing to do. And I think that's why it's a little bit tragic that so few people care because it's such an opportunity. It's a institution that people automatically think of in a way as a place to go and make a point of going wherever they are in the world. They will make a point of it of going to that famous museum or going to where that famous piece of art is held. And be, and then because they've made that decision kind of without any personal connection necessarily, purely because of the authority that supposedly exists there, they go with no personal investment and they go just to go. And so there's this very tragic missed opportunity of having such a huge population of people passing through your, one of your projects, but at the same time, knowing that their experience is kind of cut off at the knees in a way by that, by that lack of intention. But as a perhaps silver lining, because you, it's just a, it might just become a numbers game by the fact that you have a building that attracts so many people that there's a good chance that throughout the hundreds of millions or so of people that have passed through that space, at least a few of them have noticed all of the care and attention that goes into the, all of the crafting of the space. And personally, I think there's a really fascinating discussion now going on with institutional office design and how that might have been an afterthought for so many years about how the interior spaces of an office might be represented and how they might be navigated by the people working there. But now that we have this kind of more, you might even say fetishistic office culture towards particular businesses, the interior of the business has become an extension of the actual icon and the ideology of the organization that runs it. So I was wondering what exactly your idea of, if, if you are have anything to say about these trends in office design, how we have these influences on ideas of play and spontaneity coming into the office, which seems a little sometimes perhaps a bit counterintuitive, and particularly in, in the tech sector. And 
how office design is riffing on a kind of urban sensibility. Do you have any comments on that? Yes, very much so, because I've been very much involved in doing office buildings, headquarters buildings. I did 37 corporate headquarters, which meant, you know, they had to accommodate large numbers of people in appropriate settlement environments. And in each one of those, I, I spent a lot of time talking to the people, both the managers and the people themselves, about what works, you know, what are they, how do they communicate with each other and so on. And if you remember about well, if you, 50 or 60 years ago, you know, people were all sitting in rows of desks. The insurance companies started that of row after row after row after row of desks, just as closely placed as you can possibly put them and still allow people to circulate around. Now, people were smoking at their desks and there was no such thing as a coffee break or anything like that. The coffee break came in, then it got to be uh, what it is now tending toward. And then, well, before I get there, then you got into the idea of when we were doing headquarters for Cummins, there were no such thing as workstations. So we developed a workstation, modular workstation, and we had to have it made in Mexico because there was nobody in, in, in North America was making anything like that. So we sent a team down to Mexico and we got these uh, wooden workstations made. And they, it was a kind of a thing that happened very commonly after that, you know, where workstations really began to develop and became all that standard stuff that we did. And so people got more and more isolated. Now, one of the things that there, there were in offices, there was a building on Park Avenue, which was done for Union Carbide by Skidmore Eisenborough, and it's done close to the station, and I don't know who occupies it now, but it's quite a fairly handsome building of its period. But inside they had, there was a 10 by 10 office, a 10 by 15 office, a 15 by 15 office, 15 by 20 office, 20 by 20 office. There were all of these different grades in the corporation that you could get there. And what, of course, what that meant was that you were constantly moving petitions. Whenever they made anybody give him another step forward, you know, then they had to move a petition to give him a bigger office. He, he didn't get any bigger, but the office got bigger, you know. So uh, when we started with the carpet, I went through all that whole thing, and I decided everybody's the same size. Why the hell doesn't everybody sit in the same size office? And so I did something that was very, very radical for the day. I gave everybody the same size office, including the chairman of the board. So everybody was in a sort of a 12 by 12 office or something like that. And that was the most efficient, and that's how the whole thing was laid out. Uh, that was one of the um, things that, and the side thing was how do you get from your car to your office with the minimum disruption? We, we worked away, out a way for doing that. But the idea of people getting together to talk to each other wasn't the current idea at that time. Now, since that, there has been more and more the sense of, you know, the coffee break and everybody sitting, standing around chatting. And what the, the latest development of all of that is that the office is becoming a playground. It's you know, a place to sit around, lounge, have a drink, you know, get coffee, take a look at uh, some trees, bring some trees into it, have some nature, which was an idea I had promoted 50 years ago. But all of these things. So the latest kind of development is a wide open space with no fixed furniture, no fixed partitions, 
and you have water fountains and refrigerators and coffee makers, and God knows how work is ever going to get done in that environment. But, you know, because you can't just depend on people to work just for the hell of it. There's got to be some form of discipline in order to get something produced. No matter how light that discipline is, there still has to be something there to get the work out of the other end. And of course, the evolution and the development and the growth of the computer has had a, such an enormous impact. And now everybody spends half their time on computer, sort of emailing back and forth and back and forth. Nothing to do with the business at hand, you know, and cleaning out your junk mail, <laughs> and looking through Google Earth to see about something, what's going on over there, catching up with the latest news and all of those things. So I think the office as a concept will disappear and everybody will be sitting at home doing this because why would you need to get into a car and drive for 40 minutes to sit in a place with other people? You don't need to do that anymore. Your communication is all electronic now and you can just stay at home. And the office as an institution will disappear, I think, after they get through this period. It's a fascinating question because it seems to be instead of the creation of creativity from a set of limitations that you're forced to only deal with a certain set of materials or spaces and you have to make do so you become more creative of how you need to make do in that specific space through digital technologies and the internet and such we're able to work for many jobs conceivably work from anywhere and from that you don't have a built-in structure that dictates how you might run that business. And I think it's fascinating then how businesses will try to adapt to then still appeal to potential workers and employees to see how to create an office culture with or without an office. So maybe that's a good opportunity for me to ask maybe a little bit more of a general, even more of a general question about simply the idea of the architect as a creator of culture. This is an idea that seems to, in a way, almost have gone out of fashion or if in fact something that is much more hard won than it might have been before. So I was wondering, are you optimistic or pessimistic for the near future of architecture or the near future of architects as this creator of culture identity? Well, I... I can't say that I'm optimistic. I, I wouldn't say I'm pessimistic either, but I'm curious as to where we are going right now because it is not clear what is happening or what is about to happen or what is. I think, as you said, that the whole idea of going to a separate building to work is probably will have disappeared in 50 years from now. Why on earth would you need to do it? Which then, of course, brings up why do you need cities? Why do you need to be together in a city when you can just spread out over the land? Because anything that's going on in the city, you can see electronically at, at your home or wherever you are. So if somebody doesn't drop a bomb or start dropping bombs around the place, I think you will see a gradual decentralization of cities because we don't really need to physically get together anymore. We can create a community electronically. And indeed, we're doing that right now. You know, it seems a strange thing to have to say, but I think it's happening. And the idea that you have to be in a certain place because you have to have that connection to other people in order to grow and maintain a sane life, I think that will probably be less important for many, many people. And, the you know, when you look at New York and you think of the insanity, in a way, of having everybody packed up in piles 
buildings that they have to get up and down and then, then go away from and go away and travel 40 miles to go back to where they were and their spouse will be doing the same thing. And so the family as a unit tends to be fractured and to only be there if there are children and even not always if there are children. But the original purpose of a family, which was to create an environment in which the next generation can grow up and, and be reasonably sane and have a reasonable, I don't want to say education, but have a reasonable perspective on what life is all about and what uh, one's responsibilities are and what the opportunities are and so on and so forth. And out of that, we have developed education and formalized education in such a way. So everybody has to go this, through this process and get these absurd degrees that mean nothing and really don't prepare you for anything on the large, in, in the largest sense. And the purpose of all of these things has largely been lost. The purpose of education is to, you know, make a civilization so that you can expand the mind and grow and grow and grow. And we are having become so obsessed with the military aspect of our lives, which has always been a problem in history. You know, the, the killing the other guy has always been the sort of number one priority in history. But it's, uh, you know, what what are we doing here, as they say, where there was an, a depression poet, and I've forgotten his name, but he wrote a little poem that I remembered from my childhood that always stuck with me. Where are we going? What's it all about? was the opening line. And when you think about it, we still don't know. And what everything that we're doing isn't going to tell us what where we are going. And we're not going to tell us what it's all about. So that was just part one of the conversation I had with Roche. We talked for around an hour. And the first half of the interview, I guess, kind of tended a little bit more towards his generalist perceptions and reflections on what practice has been and how it's changed and how the architect's role within all of it has moved around and morphed. So the rest of the interview maybe focuses a little, we'll get to next week and we'll be able to feature the rest of it in an upcoming episode. But I just was so, so happy to talk to Roche. I mean, it's incredible. This guy has worked with Mies van der Rohe, Eero Saarinen. He's learning his own practice, won the Pritzker Prize in, I believe, 1982, and has a very clear and level-headed and and well-learned for sure perspective on on the whole entire practice and what did you guys think he was great he was great and i loved his perspective over so many decades of practice one of the things i loved that he talked about and of course i love that he talked about it in respect to j irwin miller as being the best client he's ever had and of course i work at the ima the indianapolis museum of art where we have the miller house the saarinen design miller house is one of our properties it's in columbus indiana so it's an hour south of where the main museum is but um but i've been to it several times and it is a true masterwork it really is but so kevin roche said that j irwin miller was the one of the great patrons of architecture and one of the best clients ever. And his description of a good client is someone who cares about how their project enhances a community and how it benefits the people that use it, whereas a bad client only sees money. Yeah. <laughs> and I think anyone who's listening who does work for real estate developers especially can uh, appreciate that. <laughs> the, the, you know, when it comes down to just the dollars, that that's the only thing at the bottom line that matters, you're just, it's not going to be the ideal client. 
Well, that was the other nice takeaway from the conversation is kind of dovetailing with with what Donna said about the client is the fact that, you know, when he was talking about Saarinen and, and the considerations that the modernist architects were, you know, thinking about uh, vis-a-vis the client and what was the, you know, I mean, the site, the client, their interest. And you, you get this impression from some of the people that post on Archonnect that, you know, these modernists were just these kind of building these buildings that had no relationship to anything but their own egos. And clearly, you know, just hearing Roche speak about how these people thought about architecture and what went into creating those kinds of works, you kind of get, it was nice to hear that because uh, I think, you know, that narrative is uh, pushed out there too often and it's just um, remarkably wrong. And um, so it was nice to hear from someone who's who's had a connection to those masters to, that was uh, pretty important. And he said it over and over again in many different ways that he was brought up and the people he worked with were, were taught to care about the community, to care about the users, to care about how a building fits into a general. He used a beautiful phrase that I wrote down and then I, I forgot to bring that note home with me about just like human habitation and how that was all part of the it all falls within the architect's scope as they think about how the buildings are going to form their environment as well as be formed by them. And then you think about someone like Patrick Shoemaker, sorry, have to toss him out there saying, you know, oh, that's just outside of the architect's scope. We're only about the form of the building. Like that's our only responsibility. And it just, yeah, I felt like everything Kevin Roche was talking about was reconfirming the very humanistic side of what we do. And especially that his work has so much been for gigantic institutions. Like that isn't necessarily a perspective you would think would be valued so highly for a firm that has such large projects and such large clients. I also just loved how straightforward and non-bullshitting he was in saying things (laughs) like he made a comment about how the design concept gets followed through and develops through the course of the entire building process and design process. And he straight out said that a concept is not something done by groups. Right. Yes. A concept is something that comes from the individual. And my initial response, how I initially reacted to that was a little bit, oh, like that's very much, I feel like it would be very difficult for a young contemporary architect to say something like that, to really get behind it and say like, no, this is my project or my concept. But I also think that he said it in a way that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a possessive or an egotistical move, that it's instead something that still begins, is capable of beginning within the architect as the individual. So the concept is still a thing that originates within an individual architect. That doesn't mean it doesn't go through necessary challenges throughout the course of the design, but that there's still this kind of like faith that one person can put forth this one concept in a clear-sighted way. I really enjoyed how he tried to explain that. I think, you know, I've said this before on the podcast, and and I think this is true. Basically, if you just kind of want to sum what he was saying in that regard is that, you know, committees design or, you know, set forth the process of designing a horse and they come up with a camel. And I think, you know, you have to have a clarity of, of that kind of vision. And you're, I'm much more apt to want to work with someone who has a point of view and then you try to execute that point of view than to have a bunch of people try to fit, you know, try to craft a vision. And, you know, that's why these, these, some of these firms work really well um, in that regard. And some don't, I mean, they can't always work, but that was nice to hear him talk about how, and I, and I could hear you kind of almost not audibly gasp, but kind of, hmm, like <laughs> the, the, some point yeah. of view was being, cha- some, uh, some part of you was challenged by that, 
that notion. And but I think that's probably true more times than not. And he even, you know, I loved it when he talked about how he'll wake up in the middle of the night and the idea is kind of cranking away in his brain. He wakes up and it resolves it. It's resolved some challenging perspective that he's couldn't figure out in his conscious hours. Now he's sleeping and it's figuring it out as he's sleeping and he wakes up and it's resolved in his mind. So, you know, I, it may sound a little Howard Rourkean, but I think I think that's generally how creatives work. I mean, I find myself that those moments happen. And I think we, anyone who's a creative can attest to those um, those kind of epiphanies that you wake up in the middle of the night or you wake up the next day and all of a sudden you feel comfortable with uh, what happened in the, while you were sleeping. And he, this man has lived through an incredible variety of ideological shifts in attitudes towards that whole Rourkean ideal of like the individual as creating the fully formed creative idea. I think that anyone who's been in professional practice from mid 20th century into the new millennia, whatever thing has gotten them success throughout that incredible spans of time is something they're going to stick with. So if this is what has worked for Roche, then there's no reason to begrudge it. I also loved what he said about middle managers. Because yeah. um, <laughs> yeah. it also, it was, it's always fun when someone proposes a analogy and then the analogy, and you think you know where the analogy is going, and then it goes somewhere completely differently. Like he says that um, <laughs> middle managers, they're like shaving soap. And I can't do his ir slightly Irish accent, <laughs> but I also I won't try. But um, middle managers are like shaving soap. They cover the area you have to shave, but they don't shave for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought that was lovely. It was. It was. Anyone who likes Mad Men should listen to Kevin Rose because that just sounds so much <laughs> like, you know, he, he would go to the office in a suit probably. And, and, uh... <laughs> yeah. He mentioned, speaking of office design, that kind of almost like awful industrial version of the office setting that he refers to with the, the office in set rows where people are smoking shoulder to shoulder next to one another. That was also very striking because I don't want to date myself, but I've never been in a work environment like that. I've barely <laughs> even been in a school environment like that. Like even that kind of regimented educational or office setting is just kind of completely been torn apart. It still exists and it's still necessary in a lot of industries, but it's no longer something that you don't seek architects to design those spaces necessarily. Um, you seek architects to to do something a little bit more disruptive or, or wacky. Yeah. Well, certainly. And I mean, it, it, you know, he was doing office design, especially in a time when like the knoll furniture and office sets were coming out. And so they were they, this notion that you could really regiment everything and everything would fit together as a system and people would just fit right into that. That was what people were trying, open office space and 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 trying it out. But I love that he commented on how office spaces today seem like they're playgrounds. And he used the word playground that, you know, we look at uh, work from the, I think the late 80s on sort of, and Google and everyone seems to be the um, the leading purveyors of this. Although I always think of Gatano Pesky's project that he did for, oh, the ad agency in New York. I can't remember who it is. That's the first time I ever saw this kind of office plan where you don't have a desk, you just work wherever you plop down that day. And that he was sort of saying, how can anyone get work done in that environment? Mm -hmm. How can you, you know, when the ping pong game is there, how can you get in work done. I, I thought it was a really kind of a very timely critique of what uh, is going on with all of our big internet companies right now. Yes. And I think we should now kind of bring this as an opportunity to talk about the Facebook elephant in the room. <laughs> yes, <laughs> the opening of Gary's new headquarters for Facebook. I believe it's been in the news for a while ever since, of course, the design surfaced, but the actual opening happened, I believe, at the beginning of this week. And 
There's been very little, I've, I've heard from a few other outlets that it's been difficult for architectural writers to get inside the space and, and review it from there. But Donna, you shared with Archonnect on the thread that we posted, another article by Oliver Wainwright at The Guardian, where he did a really fantastic thing that I really like, which was just sourcing all of the Instagram photos of Facebook yeah. employees to kind of give an idea of what the interiors look like. That was very cool. So smart. There are no secrets anymore. There there aren't. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm, and I'm going, I'm thinking again about Mark Kushner's TED Talk that was so great where he talks about how that's people get comfortable with buildings because everyone's Instagramming them everywhere. You know, yeah, there's no more secrets. Well, I think it's just, it's so interesting when we have this gigantic company, because we can talk as much as we want. We can talk about Gary's design and how this has been kind of, the design is a little bit interpreted as a throwback to early Gary, less about fish undulations and more about rougher materials and overreaching glass facades that go above the border of the building or so, things like that. And I think that sorting it into a Gary pile is a little bit strange. Like this is a Facebook project. This is a space for Facebook to be more of a Facebook. Um, and the fact that it's designed by Gary is, it shows in some ways, but at the same time, it's a big Silicon Valley project. And the idea that Roche brings up of like how it's a playground is because people know that they're going to be highly, there's going to be a lot of scrutiny on this space. And so not only is it important for encouraging office culture that it look consistent or that it be consistent with the Facebook aesthetic, but because everyone is going to see it, like there's no way, like there's a fantastic yeah. um, kind of snake biting its own tail thing where <laughs> there's no way to avoid this building. <laughs> I don't know. What do you guys think of the design? Do you think it's something that you would even think of Gary when you see it? Aspects. Uh, you know, aspects of it. I mean, it's uh, the obvious ones, you know, the plywood, the, uh, was it titanium? I think he still uses mm -hmm. for the metal skin. So those simple uh, gestures are really kind of evocative of what he's done in the past. And I think some of the interior conference rooms kind of remind me of some of uh, the things he's done in uh, residential projects, but generally uh, it's kind of not a Gary project, which I think is exactly what they wanted is not a Gary project. And I think it works. Yeah, I think it works too. I actually love the building. I think it looks great. And it does remind me of old time Gary's sort of original, you know, his house, which was the first yeah. project I got to know him about through, certainly. There's a real casualness. I think of it as a real California thing, you know, Amelia, you mm -hmm. were talking about everyone wanting to see California get its comeuppance. But this is in the meantime, they're just going to sit on that roof and enjoy the view and <laughs> do their, you know, their Facebooking from their mobile device in the sun. I think it's impossible to talk about this building, not in relation to all of the other tech giants that are building headquarters right now. So this one just seems so relaxed. And then we have Apple doing this thing that's completely about control, right? It's a donut. You can't enter it. You can't exit it. It's a complete circle and it's super highly refined. And then you have Google doing what might be a 1970s throwback again to the to the Friato and to the, you know, these big glass canopies or whatever's going on. And it's very malleable. But a lot of the comments that we've been seeing on Archonnect have been about how all of these companies' headquarters are just about branding. And I started to realize with the Facebook project in particular that, yes, that's exactly right. They are about branding their companies. But whenever I think about lamenting how we used to build beautiful things, I think about the way that in the like 1920s through the 50s even, you had companies building these edifices that were about their own power and sort of the best 
example of this I can think of just today on my drive to work, I went past a bank building. It's now a Chase Bank, but I'm sure when it was built, it was some local bank. But it's a limestone, probably built in the 1930s. Limestone, it's small, but quite classical. It's very hefty. You know, it, it has weight. It has permanence in the neighborhood. And as a bank in the 1920s or 30s or 40s, you wanted to be about permanence. That's the the message you wanted to put out, right? And nowadays, we're so much more about just leasing space. Like Chase is just going to lease space in a building. They're not going to put in the money to build this, this beautiful monument to their own company that is, when it comes right down to it, that is branding, right? That's showing your face to the community in the way that you want to show it. So I think it's interesting that all of these big tech companies have just all at the same time, really, started doing these these buildings that I think we we have to think of them as being a return to an investment in your own company and its appearance to the community by investing in a building, by investing in infrastructure, rather than just leasing a bunch of office spaces, which is what the guys in finance will tell you that's what you should do because you can write off your lease that way. And, you know, financially, there's all these tax benefits or something. So to me, I find this, the notion of building a company headquarters that is intended to say something about your company brand, I mean, that's a good thing for architects. It should be, I think. Do you agree? Yeah. You know, and it's not just saying something to the community. It's not just saying something or, or giving opportunity for architects to say something or just a branding. But I mean, look, these are three companies. How many miles apart are they from one another? They're pretty much generally in the same location. So it's a competition for talent. You come to the space that best represents your ideals. Yeah. Look, they certainly haven't clamped down and said to their employees, no Instagramming this. Um, yeah. And they've really shared a whole lot of images about the space that seems to be um, much more in tune with places that we would like to work. I know I would. Um, it certainly appeals to me. Um, I never buy into this idea that, um, you know, open offices are, those studies really don't mean a whole lot to me about open office design being not as, you're not as productive. I think these kinds of places where are potentially very helpful. There's also a drawback. I mean, the you know, in terms of thinking about the notion of a of a place that is so attractive to work, it almost makes you feel like you, why go home? My home is never going to be as yeah. cool as this place. So there's this devotion to your work environment, which may be more of a an impetus to physically connect you to that space and, and not leave. So it was interesting where Kevin was talking about the changing nature of offices and how these will, maybe we don't have offices in 50 years. Maybe that's not how we work. And I know for many people that isn't how they work. Linda, for instance, doesn't work that way. She doesn't go to an office. She, she works out of the house, out of our home. And when she does go in, she doesn't have a fixed place. She goes to whatever's open. So th- the notion of office architecture is actually changing as we speak. And it may not be 50 years. It may be a much shorter time period than that. But, you know, again, I try to figure out where the Archonnect public is going. They hate Gary when he does Gary. <laughs> and then here's a building with traditionally not Gary. And it's kind of back into his old school and a very responsive, very responsive to what the client wanted. So right. everything that Gary's getting slammed for not being when he designs those fantastic museums is he's getting shit here for not being the guy who does those fantastic museums museums and not doing something that ignores the client's needs. So damned if you do, I guess. Exactly. Exactly. I was just laughing because I'm thinking about the people who work at Facebook 
you know, being like basically living in the office because they constantly, there's a cafe, there's places to work out, there's places to go upstairs, all that. And, uh, you know, that's how people are living these days in many, many ways, right? I'm always, I've always got my phone with me. I'm always connected in some way to something else that's going on elsewhere. So it's not about clocking in at eight and clocking out at five, right? No. That way of work just doesn't really exist anymore for most people, certainly, and in, in most white collar professions, certainly. So, uh, yeah. I never feel taken advantage of in a work situation where I have a sense of autonomy that is important to me. That if I felt like, you know, if I really honestly felt like I can come into work at 10 and leave at 5 or and then come back at 8 and I had that flexibility, my time would be mine to do and I could spend that time however I wanted and I could still get the work done that needed to get done. And and I think that's the one of the other aspects that's sorely missing. And I go back to talking about what Linda does. She's part of a results-only work environment where she's not clocking time. It's about what's necessary to get the project done. And if you do what, you know, if you're fulfilling your project demands and getting that project done, then why is clock important? Then you can go play ping pong after that. Yeah. Why is architecture not that way? Whenever we were in studio, we didn't go look at our watch, go, you know what? We spent three hours in studio. We should, you know, clock out. We spent as much time as we thought, thought was necessary. And it's, you know, those things need to work that way. What I think is so cool about this space is, Ken, what you alluded to earlier is the proximity of all of these tech companies at kind of around the same time building these gigantic edifices to varying degrees and to varying different branding properties. But what I find really cool about these projects is the future of when the inevitable when the inevitable happens and these businesses no longer need these buildings or to serve the same purpose they did before or they can either they're no longer associated with Facebook or Apple or whatever or they are but they are leased out to something else i can just see menlo park and mountain view and this area of the bay area becoming either two other of two things one a complete theme park, a place where you can kind of relive the kind of like an Epcot center, like you can relive this certain time in technological history. And the second option is affordable housing for Bay Area residents. Can the the really, you know, cynical side of the whole office culture being so accommodating and perk filled that you could live your whole life there, that that becomes more of an actual reality. And we already see that happening to a degree with certain organizations like WeWork, the co-working company has made plans to lease out a building, I believe, outside of Washington, D.C. and make it into something called We Live, which is both exactly the same as a college dorm because it puts people who live together in net right next to shared working spaces for people who are able to facilitate their actual office work in those spaces. And at the same time, it's lauded as this completely new and utterly um, innovative new working scenario where the line between work scenarios and workspaces and living spaces and living scenarios is completely dissolved. And it's it's something that is impossible to completely imagine what it will look like because it's so bent on whatever technological formats we have indebted to everything. So whether that's sitting at a laptop or swiping at a screen or some type of wearable that we can't even imagine yet, it's hard to know what structurally that would exist in. But what we do know is that it kind of liberates the architecture. If you don't have to plan specifically for this machine that can only operate here, then you kind of do get into the open plan office that Facebook is so proud of. I also think it's important to mention that 
in any type of criticism that says this is just Facebook trying to brand itself by attaching itself to Gary, that is a completely flawed argument because Gary reached out to Facebook. Gary was the one who really wanted this project. And Mark Zuckerberg has been quoted as saying, like, we initially said, no, we don't want Gary to design our building because we just don't think it fits with our, our culture, our image. And we also don't think that it would be within... <laughs> as strange as this may sound, wouldn't be within Facebook's budget to do. It would be too too expensive of a project. And Gary came back and like said, you know, look at a bunch of different other bids and I'll beat them all. And he did. And according to Mark Zuckerberg, the project was done before the intended schedule was finished and under budget. So it's a very interesting project in some ways because it's so open-ended. So I want to see what happens in 50 years see what happens when Mark Zuckerberg is no longer of this earth and uh, what Facebook's legacy will be after that and what this building will become. But I don't know, maybe we should start actually cropping up the um, affordable housing advertisements (laughs) now. (laughs) Say, all you need to do is either get a job at Facebook or know someone who will, you know, swipe you in and let you eat out of the cafeteria. I imagine in an employee group of 1,800, there are a couple that could do that. They could easily slip in and, yeah, just live there. (laughs) We'll soon get the Facebook squatters. That will be a whole new trend urban movement where people are, instead of, you know, like the Japanese businessmen renting out high school lockers to sleep in, (laughs) instead it's something like, yeah, just sneaking into the Facebook facilities. Yeah, yeah. Sleep at this end of the building one day and then do a little work in the middle of the building and then sleep at the other end of the building the next day. And eventually no one's going to, because this thing is long, right? It's like, it's half a mile long or something. I mean, it's a, it's a big, long space. It's pretty huge. So do we have any other parting thoughts on Gary or Facebook before moving on? No. No, I like the building. I think it seems like a good, like I said, early sort of Gary, simple pay on to the rawness of materials in a way that I think is really good. So we'll put the post up to that Wainwright article, right? So people can see the Instagrams. Definitely. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, they're still coming out. People are not going to stop Instagramming this place anytime soon. Right. There'll be a lot more pictures of people jumping off of stumps on the roof. (laughs) Be very cute. They're having such a great time in their job which is, I guess, the entire point. And of course, Facebook is having a great time drawing all this traffic to Instagram, which they own. So that's right. right. (laughs) It's all great. But actually, maybe affordable housing in Facebook as a complete fantasy scenario. The other topic we wanted to talk about today has to do with the opening up of Cuba, that now U.S. and diplomatic ties between the U.S. and Cuba were opened last December. And now American businesses can start operating in Cuba. And It's a very interesting scenario because there is incredibly frozen architectural heritage in Cuba. There really hasn't been much tending to the rich heritage there, but it's still quite active and definitely protected. Um, I believe an area of Old Havana became a UNESCO World Heritage Site sometime in the early 80s. That being said, I believe 4% of of the Cuban residents have access to internet. And so the movement of Airbnb into Cuba as kind of one of these first American hospitality industries setting foot there is pretty, a very interesting one and a very potentially disruptive, but in a way that the tech sector doesn't want disruptive to be used, but disruptive in a different way. And we're going to have to see how how this affects tourism, how it affects urbanism in places like Havana and other places in Cuba and how it affects the architecture, whether this increased tourism, supposed increased tourism that Airbnb might lead into Cuba would encourage historical preservationism, um, whether it would encourage maybe not such wanted competition with other hotel industries to build new properties in in Cuba. So yeah, what do you guys think of of what this may 
mean for architecture in Cuba? I just want to point out that my prediction for 2015 was that Havana was going to get ruined because now that it was open, all the, you know, Hilton and everyone else was going to move in. So in a way, I'm kind of cheering on Airbnb right now. I I did read, there's been a a lot of interesting comments about it. One of the, the, uh, an article came across my Facebook or something, and the headline was something like, only five companies or only five people control 90% of the Airbnbs in Cuba. And as it turns out, Airbnb is very upfront about this. The So few people in Cuba have internet access that there is basically a middleman at this point. There's a broker who has the internet access who, you know, there's five of them. They do the communicating with Airbnb. They also then do the communicating with the, the people who have the house or the apartment or whatever. And it, at this point, the traffic just has to move that way because there is not enough internet coverage in the country to allow it to work any other way. So it is really interesting to me how this might play out. My hope is that if more and more people can find a way to make income off their homes that, 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 and that if more people are hopefully looking for more of an authentic experience rather than, you know, the Club Med Cuba or whatever might happen, I would hope that this could help to keep Havana as a beautiful historic district. We'll see. I, I think everyone's obviously trying to wedge their way in and, and figure it out at this point. So I'm, I have mixed feelings about it all, but we'll see. Donna, you pointed this out, but there was a pre-existing and probably currently still existing network of private homes that were informally listed in some way and people could travel in if they were visiting. The Bloomberg article that we cite on Arginect um, refers to these as casas particulares and that, you know, it just would be much more of a casual setting. And this is also legally speaking why Airbnb is also so interesting in that it can be seen itself as a kind of broker, not so much a seller, but a broker of people who would otherwise have this informal system of renting out their homes or renting out their spaces to people interested in traveling there. But instead, Airbnb is just kind of gathering all of those and making them into a searchable database where then it then also takes a cut. So I'm not so sure that this will have a automatically huge effect other than with well, I don't know. It's hard to say because I think as an American tourist, if you were to go to Cuba, this does seem like a very appealing option. And it does feel like something that when you're traveling to a city that has otherwise been cut off from the U.S. for the better part of the last 50 years, it's kind of hard to not want to get that close and get into whatever domestic sphere that you can as quickly as possible. Absolutely. Absolutely. It it does seem like at this point, especially people are looking for that experience of seeing what has not been spoiled by the West for 50 years, basically. Um, Well, the United States. Okay. Okay. Spoiled by the United States. Sure. (laughs) No, I was going to ask the Airbnb is, I mean, you know, so uh, if I'm in, if I'm in Paris, I can have access to Airbnb, correct? I mean, there's, there's that. I actually think that there is some still restrictions around how you can view the Cuban entries on Airbnb. I think you can only do that from the U.S. at this point. Oh, really? Yes. But I'm not entirely sure on that. But no, of course, that this is not just a totally free opening. It's it's highly um, restricted still about how to access these things and that it's it's strictly between the U.S. and Cuba at this point. And I don't know, are either of you curious at least to to go at any point? Have you considered it ever since the ties opened up in December? Oh, yeah. Why not? <laughs> yeah, that kind of attitude. I'm very I have that same attitude, Ken. Like, why not? Now this place is there to us. I guess I really wanted to go before it was open, um, but that seemed kind of impossible. But but now I feel like if I want to go, I better do it soon because I do still worry that it's going to get ruined. The other reason I really want to go, of course, is the cars. My husband's a car guy. I, I want to see all these great 
preserved hot rod or yeah, hot rod cars from the fifties that, um, and, and earlier that belong, that are still down there that they've kept running. There's a great documentary, a little documentary about those cars. And yeah, I, I really wanted to go see the cars first, which is um, rare for me because usually I'm all about the architecture, but yeah, no, I would love to go. I mean, I think, and I guess that's kind of the problem. We all want to. Mm. Yeah. So this is just also maybe more of a story about Airbnb than it is about Havana or about Cuban architecture, unfortunately, at this point, only because historically it's, I, I can't imagine like a similar scenario where you have this, this entire country that has not had as has not been invaded by American <laughs> culture in the same way, and yet still has. I mean, obviously, it's, nothing is a tight ship. There, I remember seeing um, recently this amazing documentary about the punk movement in Cuba, and oh, wow. <laughs> and uh, people like doing crazy, crazy stuff, purposely injecting themselves with HIV positive blood so that they could get into the health system because the health system under Castro was still actually a pretty luxe place to live. Oh my goodness. If you couldn't get bread just as a domestic citizen, you could get at least your meals if you were in some type of hospitalized scenario. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. <laughs> the point is that just how crazy of a scenario is it to have where Airbnb is the sole hospitality for tourism at this point for the U.S. that is set up in this country so that everything is kind of still kept native in that way. I kind of see this as like a from a completely like this has nothing to do with Cuban culture, but just to look at it from Airbnb's perspective that they see Cuba as kind of like this Galapagos experiment where they get to be in there. And I, that's a totally, you know, sue me for however horrible rhetoric that sounds. No, I love it. But it's it's seriously, I can see them thinking through about this and be like, oh my God, this is like untouched territory in a way. Right. We need to right. get in there on the ground level as soon as possible. And they did. So, And I do think it's interesting that you, as you said, there's there was this pre-existing network of these places to stay that were local, that Airbnb is basically saying, hey, that's our model. So yeah, let's contact those people. They're already uh, doing it. And a few things. I mean, you know, this is kind of makes sense for Airbnb in the sense that they've had such problems in, the, in, in many cities in the United States about their model and with the hotel industry. So they're in there first and they're in a system that is closed, closed system. So there's not a lot of root in there are a lot of ways in there for like the Hiltons and all of these other companies because one, they're restricted, but they would probably have to operate under much tighter controls. And this kind of seems like they're kind of operating inside of something that actually only protects them and they're not creating architecture. So I think if, if somebody were to go in there very heavy handed and start building resorts, you could have some problems. You know, I think there's still this kind of robust rejection of kind of uh, the colonialism and, and the capitalism that exists in America. I think you might see some small measures, but I don't, I can't imagine that people just change overnight. I know they want, they want freedom, but I think not to their culture, I think that would be giving up too much. It does change the whole tech rhetoric of disruption, though, because what are you disrupting? It's kind of like now we have to wait for the, the Hiltons uh, <laughs> to move in to disrupt the Airbnb model and commercialize right. the crap out of it. But this is still very, you know, it's very early on. The pathways were opened back up in December and we will have to see how the business develops there and what else has to go on. It'll be interesting to look back in a year or two and see how it all shook out, you know? It's very experimental at this point. Yeah. So that pretty much does it, though, for this week. Do you guys have anything to add for endorsements or things you'd like to point to? I do. I'll go ahead. 
A couple things. One is I had a couple years ago posted a news item about the Miller House Tumblr. I mentioned the Miller House earlier as in regards to Roche and J. Irwin Miller, the best client ever, apparently. The IMA has a Tumblr on the Miller House archives, and it is called Documenting Modern. And they basically just put up all, they have 23,000 items in the archives of the construction of the Miller House. And they put up all these great little bits of information, everything from drawings to pictures of samples of fabric to objects that were purchased at auction for Mrs. Miller's paperweight collection. And one of the things that went up this week was Saarinen's stamp his architect's seal on the drawings, which of course I loved seeing. And also this is kind of tragic, but another piece that just went up this week or about a week ago was a sample of polar bear that was to be used for the polar bear rug in the powder room. (laughs) (laughs) I know the notion of, of a polar bear rug is just appalling, but you know, it was back then they, they took the little sample of the fur on hide and sent it over for Mrs. Miller to approve. So um, you can see pictures of it in the archive and, and think about how differently we practice architecture today. Oh, man. Yeah. I hope they didn't go through multiple polar bears before that she found oh, a swatch that she approved of. Bring me 10 more samples. Yeah. This one's got too much gray. This one smells <laughs> like fish. This oh. one isn't polar enough. <laughs> the other thing, actually, this dovetails into my other endorsement, which is not of something unarchitected. It's something that the AIA is doing um, on the the AIA on Architect Magazine's website is doing, has started a new series on ethics in practice. And I'm just really going to keep an eye on it. I'm really interested in the whole notion of ethics and how quickly these ethics are changing as, um, as we practice more globally and practice in new communities like, like Havana. So I just wanted to point out the series on ethics in practice and hope that there will be robust conversations around ethics as we move forward. That's mine. Great. Definitely. Well, we'll include all of that in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Ken, is there anything you want to address? Yeah, I'd like the the piece you posted, uh, I think it was yesterday, Amelia, regarding the uh, Mies-designed um, Martin Luther King Memorial Library in D.C. You know, I think what the article does a good job of pointing out is the, the problems I have with historic preservation committees and commissions with regards to buildings like this. Here's a building that has never apparently... Uh, since it's open, has never been a really a celebratory piece of architecture by Mies van der Rohe, at least in that community, and continues to this day to be a, a kind of a drain on the on the area and uh, the people who uh, use the building. And this great architecture firm, Mechanu, I think that's how you pronounce that, has this great idea to, to do the redesign, and it gets slammed by the Historic Preservation Committee as though anything but, you know, as though there was some other, better idea how to create... Um, or how to uh, make this building much more usable and habitable and, and safe for people in that area. And again, they managed to, based on the drawings that were uh, released earlier this year and the subsequent rendering, I think within the past few days, they have managed to uh, turn something very interesting into a mess. Again, um, <laughs> committees with uh, their ideas and such. With the camels, um, yep. Yeah. So... You know, generally, I won't say I generally don't like historic preservationists, but I think when a building is not seen as a particular asset, I think it's up to architects to create something out of that deficit and make it something that people will actually use and like and become much more integrated into the community. And here they go and get in the way of something that it wasn't, you know, if it was a, a jewel, if it was something really important and and was you know and the community was you know on board with um you know saving it and preserving it and it was had some value i mean i get i get all of that i understand that but here's a building that was really lacking 
and in many ways, and they sought to make it um, much more appealing. And I think historic preservation gets in the way of letting architects do what they do. So Yeah, Ken, I really like this article because it focused not so much necessarily on the current newsiness of it. In fact, the entire redesign won't even be made public until the end of this month or later this month. So it's still kind of like we don't have all of the information yet. But what we do know is that there are really specific things in this building that are terrible, <laughs> that just don't, don't, <laughs> just work. don't work. They just don't work. And it's not that they don't work in a fantastic way or in, an ex- or in a, um, a way that serves another purpose, another unexpected purpose. They are just elements of the building that by all means could be made better in very in easy ways, but are being turned down. The redesigns for them are being turned down for whatever reason by historical preservation committees and by reason of historical preservation. So if this building were a, say, if it were to fulfill a function that had not changed in since its inception, and when, when I believe when it was installed and was it like the late 60s, early 70s, that if the function of a library had not changed at all in the span of time, then I could see maybe there would be less pushback against the hesitancy to redesign elements. But the fact that libraries do not do the same things, they don't do the same things that they used to do in the same way, that we have this new opportunity to semantically reinterpret what a library's structure should be, and that there are certain elements that aren't serving the old or the new idea of what a library should be that we should be able to improve upon, but simply are being struck down for whatever reason. So I encourage people to read the article. It's a little bit longer. It's a little bit on the longish side, but it's really interesting take and really well-researched take on what's going on with this building, its public perception, and what the redesign struggle has been like. So given that we're talking about Mies and it's very topical, I just want to point out, you know, Mies did do quite a few buildings. Some of them are better than others. Last Friday, Daily Dose of Architecture posted a link to, in honor of Mies van der Rohe's 129th birthday, link of photographs from Flickr of some of his best buildings. And they are beautiful photographs. And you can just go in and look at Mies's genius in all of its glory of rigor and repetition. And, you know, some of them are masterpieces. And we all, all architects do things that aren't maybe really that so important that we should keep them around, even though they totally don't function. Now, anyone, of course, who listened to our podcast on the Folk Art Museum is just going to come and crucify me for that statement that I just made. But that's okay. <laughs> Bring it on in the discussion and I will I will rebut whatever accusations <laughs> you make. So, <laughs> Amelia, do you have endorsements? In fact, I do. And perhaps it might be a little self-serving to endorse something that I wrote, but I am happy to do that because most of it I did not write. Most of it comes from the mouth of Abraham Burickson. This is a working out of the box interview we did with Abe, who runs this wonderful, amazing, incredible organization called Odyssey Works. And Odyssey Works is, as I get to a little bit more deeply in the piece, it's basically a theater company, but the types of productions they put on are incredibly long. They're around maybe a day or two days. They are for an audience of one and they are not scripted in the same way you would script a play, but they're more scripted based on scenarios and happenings. So what Odyssey Works does is goes and investigates a person's life to an incredible degree. They research everything they can get to know about them with the person's consent. The person will have gone through an incredibly rigorous application process where they kind of spill their guts and are eventually chosen as this kind of subject. And then Odyssey Works investigates their lifestyle, their personality, their family, their relationships, their professional life, everything. 
and creates this performance, this perhaps days long performance that where they lead the person through these experiences. And the fact that this even exists as like a economic model is pretty fantastic and pretty incredible. And Abraham Bergson is trained as an architect, but also is a, is a poet, award-winning poet and continues teaching and practicing architecture while running Odyssey Works. So I encourage everyone to go and check out the working out of the box with him. He's very incredibly thoughtful and very empathetic person in dealing with these incredibly fraught and powerful experiences that he is part of a group putting on for people. And man, if I could talk to someone who had been the subject of an Odyssey work, that would be incredible. It's hard to imagine like being one of these people who is the subject of such incredible attention and artistic output. So I hope people have a chance to check that out. It's a beautiful article. And his words are just lovely, as you said. I love the way that the whole topic of architecture interweaves within his entire discussion of what he does as an artist and as a sort of a, a performance artist, in fact. But the notion of being a subject of one of those works creeps me out. I wouldn't want to do it personally. <laughs> well, I was originally put in touch with Abraham from a friend of mine who had also spoken to him. And she had a much longer interview conversation where she was just like, moved to tears through the course of imagining it. Like she was just like, I, I cannot imagine. And, and she told me that certain people have made after experiencing an Odyssey work for them, these subjects have done incredibly drastic things. Like they've made major life decisions in a, you know, in the, in the period following one of these things, because suddenly something happens, something is like triggered or kind of let loose in their life. So there's so much that Odyssey Works encapsulates. You can even call it, even in a way, a little bit cultish. But I think it's a fantastic art platform. And Abraham's perspective on all of it, Donna, as you said, really does evoke architecture in a way that I've never seen before. So I was very interested with it. You know, going back to what Kevin talked about before, if I can make a connection, it's interesting that these things don't seem that altogether too different. If you invest the time in understanding who your client is, understand their peculiarities, the things that would makes them unique, the things that they don't see that in and of themselves, they don't recognize it. And then when you put on a piece for them, I can't but see that it would be transformative because it's like, wow, somebody sees me in a way I never saw myself. And so that's what's so important for me about architecture and what's important about this piece is that I just, I've read it and I go, well, of course. I didn't have to think twice and go, this is, you know, this is really out of the box because this is how I've always wanted to practice architecture is getting to know someone and understand that, you know, and let them know that you're, you're an individual, you're a person, you have values, you have, you have things that you like. There's, we can design to who you are. And so to see somebody actually doing that and putting it to kind of a performance piece is that's the kind of work I want to be doing. I mean, it just, it doesn't even seem out of the box to me. It just seems kind of, it is a natural extension of what I think about and how I think about architecture. So residential, Ken, you got to start doing residential because you <laughs> affect everything about someone's life, where they wake up, where they go to the bathroom, where, you know. <laughs> well, it's a very personal piece um, that he's creating. And, and I think it would be transformative even for himself because the things I think about in architecture don't always translate to actually built form. And, and I'm trying to get comfortable with that because I always been told that you have to build something in order to be an architect. And I can point to any number of people that I've been fascinated uh, with, you know, Hayda, um, 
Lavius Woods, um, you know, and, you know, Raymond Abraham, who he's built some, but he built some, but didn't build a lot. Those people still, to me, were architects because they built things that my imagination couldn't inhabit. And so I'm fascinated by those things that where I could be taken spiritually uh, or, you know, disembody myself and kind of go there and, and be connected to something that isn't, that I'm not physically connected to. And, you know, social media is doing that for us now. We're seeing the space through Facebook and we're not physically there, but we're seeing it. So we have an, a, a sense of what it is, even though the people on Arconnect want to complain about the exterior all the time. <laughs> um, well, now we get a better sense of what it is. And it's not even in a Rizzoli publication or, or a Princeton Architectural Press. It's on Instagram. So I think, you know, we're getting the nature of how we experience things is, is altering every single day. We're using, you know, Periscope to do real-time video feeds. And so, I mean, the nature of experience is changing and it does only mean, I think it's good things for us as designers. So this was an exciting piece. Ken, yeah, you brought up so many issues that are just flying around my head and having to do with this issue because I think he really encapsulates this new approach to what architecture can be, that if you step back from what is actually being created in a course of one of these Odyssey works and call all of it architecture, I don't think that's actually such a hard thing to do because not only are you creating experience, you're creating the atmosphere of existence for these people at a certain time. You are actually also creating things like structures. Um, a lot of the pieces do involve creating building structures. And also, Ken, what you referred to of like having these things that aren't necessarily translatable into physical structures, but that you nonetheless imagine in the course of building for a specific client. Odyssey Works gets to build those things. Like they create all of those things that they imagine whether it's an action, a sound, an object, or whatever. So yeah, I was totally blown away by the piece and definitely takes a, and it knocks the wind out of your stomach trying to imagine all of this thing's happening to you. <laughs> That's cool. It is cool. It's beautiful. Ken, I love your comments about it. Yeah, it just brings me up to that that place in my mind where architecture is really magic and... And it's safe. And yeah. It's yeah, safe that because too. I don't have to worry about a critic. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm <anonymous> critic. <laughs> ah, screw the critics. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, anyway. But yeah, I think that is pretty much our show mm -hmm. for the day, for the week. Next episode, most likely, or an upcoming episode, we will feature the second part of my interview with Kevin Roche. So keep an eye out for that. And um, it won't be such, it'll, the entire interview was about an hour. So we'll probably have the, the last third of it featured on an upcoming episode. Thanks everybody for listening. As always, you can send us your questions or comments by leaving a voicemail message for us at 213-784-7421 or getting in touch with us by Twitter at hashtag Arconnect Sessions. Sorry, that was confusing. Just hashtag Arconnect Sessions or through email to connect at arconnect.com. We're also wondering uh, what your stories are having to deal with starting architectural partnerships, starting or ending them. Ooh. What types of conflicts you've had to resolve, the good and the bad stories, please send them to us by any of those avenues. Um, we'd love to hear them. So I just today got a new Twitter follower who's called Relationship Tips. I'm assuming it's spam, but is this you, Amelia, under the guise of oh. partnerships? And <laughs> oh my gosh, I wish. I, we should start a, a Arconnect relationship problems Twitter. 
<laughs> no, I'm sure it's just spam. I'm certain of it. But um, <sighs> but yes, partnerships are very much about, it's about a relationship. And uh, yeah, I hope we get some good stories of people starting them and ending them. Yes. So please send us your best stories and your worst. And if you want to get the freshest episodes of our Connect Sessions automatically downloaded, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you can, please rate the show and leave your comments. It's super helpful to us. We really thrive on the feedback and we really appreciate it. It also helps other people find us and the show. So until next week, thanks, Donna. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Amelia. Thanks, Amelia. Thanks, Donna. Thanks, Ken. Bye, guys. Bye. See you next week. Cheers. Bye.